Hello, world. Welcome to the Mile High Fi Podcast. My name is Carl Jensen, and I'm here with my co-host. I'm Doug Cunnington. And we have another very, very cool guest today. Who are you and what do you do? I'm Kristen Rainey, and I'm founder and CEO of North Star Sleep School, which is a program that helps people make behavior changes to get better sleep. And I'm also the host of the North Star Unplugged podcast. So I just met Kristen in Oaxaca, Mexico. When were we there? Was that July? No, it was June. Uh, I was there in May. Okay. Uh, I think it was May. I'm sorry. It seems like... uh, Summer is very hectic. So yeah, we met in May and I didn't think I'd see you for a long time after that. And then here you are, you came to Longmont for the event that we happen to be hosting this weekend. It's so nice to see you again after only, when is that, June, July, August, three months? I'm, I'm super excited to be here. Yeah, very cool. Um, yeah, let's talk about something you just did. Where did you just get back from and what were you doing there? I just got back from Alaska. Um, I was in Katmai National Park for about eight days um, with a small group. It was a, a backpacking trip. And um, my friend, uh, Tim Jeffreyon, who was actually a, a guest on my podcast, um, he is out to check out all of the national parks in the U.S. And he's been doing this over the last two years. And um, I felt very fortunate and honored to be included in this group. And it was just an awesome group of people. And the beginning and end of the trip, we started at Brooks Camp, which is where you can see tons and tons of bears eating salmon. And I could watch that all day long. Wow. Are they grizzly bears, black bears? They're grizzly bears. And there's actually, they've built this little boardwalk so that you can um, walk out there. And the best time is uh, in the evening, like 7 to 10 p.m. And... The last night I was there, there were 47 bears eating salmon. It was just completely crazy. Okay. So whenever someone brings up grizzly bears, my mind immediately goes to the movie Grizzly Man. And I know that's a whole other thing. Have you heard of that before? No. Uh, He was some guy who treated bears kind of like dogs and went up to and fed them. And then he eventually got, was food for the bears. So an unpleasant ending and the whole thing was recorded on audio anyway. But I'm sure you watched the bears from a very safe distance and you did not do the same things that Grizzly Man did. How how close were you to them? Yeah, pretty close. But the uh, the the boardwalk thing was pretty safe. Um, now that you mention it, now I think I do know who that Grizzly Man guy is. I just haven't seen um, the, the film or whatever. But yeah. uh, there were actually a lot of fishermen who were in the water with the bears. So that was pretty interesting to watch. Um, wow, competing with the bears for fish yeah there were so much fish that nobody seemed to care that the there were some fishermen there were just so many salmon that's cool the bears didn't care either apparently what was the terrain like on the backpacking trip was this mountainous or what you know it was a lot less lush than i thought um there actually was a um a, a volcano erupted in um like 1914 or something like that and it was fairly massive in fact it was like bigger than krakatoa and bigger than many other eruptions that we've heard about. And um, so the whole landscape was really kind of much more rocky. And actually, some parts of it looked more like the southwest of the U.S. than any kind of lush terrain. There was only a little bit of bushwhacking. So that kind of uh, made me rethink my notion of Alaska, for sure. This is an exciting trip. Volcanoes, bears. And that's one of the spots where you have to take a, a plane to get to it, right? You can't drive to it in any capacity. 
Exactly. I, I flew from Bozeman to Anchorage, spent the night, and then flew in another plane from Anchorage to King Salmon, which is another airport, and then took a float plane from King Salmon to Brooks Camp. And that's where the trip started and ended. Are you nervous on smaller planes like that? Um, that was my first float plane. I, I had been on a tiny plane once um, uh, in Kenya going to the Mara um, which was a place to check out um, safari and all that, but um, yeah, I was relieved when it was when it was done. But it was actually pretty pretty cool, um, pretty cool way to see the surroundings. Amazing. Had you been to Alaska before? Yeah, I did a, a bike ride once uh, many years ago that was uh, Fairbanks to Anchorage. That was an AIDS fundraiser, so it was a, it was a trip where you know they set up this whole tent city every night, and there was like you know hundreds of people, uh, and it was a big big fundraiser. So I had had been to Alaska once before. Okay, cool. That's awesome. So you were there for eight days backpacking, and it sounds like you unplugged for a little bit. So can you tell us about that? Yeah, I um, there was no phone or Wi-Fi reception, and didn't even have my um, my laptop with me. And that was um, I can't even tell you the last time that I truly unplugged for that amount of time, which is really kind of ironic because one of the themes of my podcast is unplugging, and yet <laughs> I can't seem to do it. So it was very healthy, and I came home feeling very rested and rejuvenated. And I need to do this far, far more often. Did you go through like a withdrawal withdrawal <laughs> in the first couple of days where you just kept checking your pocket or s something like that? Well, I had my phone because I've been using it as my camera. And so, yes, there were many temptations to, you know, refresh, refresh my email, refresh my, my podcast, refresh Schwab, you know, refresh all these things that I obsessively check. So uh, it, 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 it did start off that way. And then I quickly got involved with other things that were more interesting and more healthy. And when did you get back and finish the trip? Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, two Saturdays ago. And unfortunately, a lot of the flights back from Anchorage are leaving at like midnight or 1 a.m. So even though I'd had all this amazing rest during this week and felt amazing, then I had this red eye home and then just felt like garbage. So I kind of uh, reversed a lot of the benefits of the trip, unfortunately. And then how quick did it take to revert back to the normal you know, checking your email and refresh, refresh, refresh. That was immediate. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I found too. The, the times, yeah. uh, it, it's just a nice bad habit to get right back into like mm. junk food or well, and any great bad habit, you can get right back into it. Well, coffee too. I mean, I don't know if I would say coffee is a bad habit, but I did take a break from caffeine for that week. And um, there was a part of me that was thinking, gosh, this would be a nice transition to be able to see how it goes uh, for maybe three more weeks of no caffeine. And um, I didn't even last, you know, we had to kill like eight hours in this tiny town of King Salmon. And I basically <laughs> hadn't even gone on the plane yet. And there was an opportunity to have some coffee. So um, yeah, I'm not, I, I, my, my willpower is not very good, I guess. It's okay. It must be a bit of a surreal situation because how often in modern life are you talking with a group of people and then someone breaks usually within two minutes and they're out of the conversation. They're paying attention to their phone to have a week with, I'm not sure how many people, it sounds like it was a small group, but no one checking their phone at any time, except maybe to take a picture. It sounds kind of like a surreal zombie apocalypse situation now that none of us in modern times can even relate to. Yeah. I mean, what a novelty to actually be present and to be able to just have conversations. And, um, it, yeah, it's, a, it's, it, 
it's something that I would love to do more often. And unfortunately, it actually seems to be harder and harder to take this kind of a break. Yeah. So we're going to talk about happiness a little bit later, but I can't wait. I have to ask you this question now. When you read about happiness, you read a lot about how being in the moment is one of the keys to being happy. And of course, every time you look at a phone, you're taken out of the moment. You're taken to the past or the future or an email, but you're taking out, you're taken out of wherever you were. Did you feel your happiness change at all when you couldn't have the phone this whole time or when you weren't paying attention to the phone? That's a good question. I... I think my happiness was higher on this trip, but I think that there's just too many variables. I think, yes, one might be that I wasn't constantly distracted by um, gadgets, but another would be that I got, you know, a ton of sleep. I mean, I would get into my tent at like, you know, like 7.30 at night and maybe I'd read a little bit, but like, I mean, I it was like, you know, I wasn't getting out of my tent until like 7.30 in the morning, which is actually late for me. So the combination of just being outside all day and, um, you know, being able to, uh, swim a couple times in this little uh, icy waters, which I really enjoy, and then um, being around great people, and then not having a, a phone to check obsessively. All those things, um, I think, contributed to a pretty great week. Cool. Very cool. And actually, I'm going to ask Carl a question because I'm curious. Have you unplugged like that for any length of time, like over 24 hours in recent memory? Yeah, it's sad, but I don't think I've been without a phone for more than probably 12 or 16 hours, I would say a day hasn't gone by that I have not checked email in probably the last 10 years of my life. I, I hate it. I hate my phone. But one of the issues I find is other people have an expectation that you're going to be reachable at any time. So one of my old life hacks used to be just to turn my phone on airplane mode for hours at a time. And then I turn it back on and I've got all these angry messages from my wife. And it wasn't her fault, but she had the expectation that, that I was going to be reachable so you kind of feel like you have to have this ball and chain tethered to you at all times <laughs> just for the expectations of others. But no, I, how about you, Doug? I have actually on a road trip to Alaska and I didn't get an international data plan. So I didn't really have a signal while driving through Canada. And that was, you know, five, six days in Canada. So that was fantastic. I slightly cheated occasionally. So it wasn't a hundred percent, 24 hours a day for the five or six days. Occasionally you would get Wi-Fi at one of the hotels, but it was like the worst Wi-Fi that you could ever get. So I could just check in with my wife and say, we're not dead. You know, we, we made it to the next spot, but it was fantastic. Just like you're, you're talking about Kristen, where you you're with the, the people that you're hanging out with you're no one's distracted because no one can get a signal and it's uh yeah it was it was great i really enjoyed it and the the other time was on uh like a trip to the caribbean with uh, a friend but it was like a remote island so we were all uncertain if we'd be able to get any any kind of signal and it turned out that none of us could but we had a great time we played cards and we would bullshit and make up stories because you couldn't fact check anything at that point. You couldn't Google and you would just get in an argument and then you just have to, you know, make your case. That's it. It was fun. So I think we should get into our first topic and that topic is money. What are the things you're not supposed to talk about? Sex, religion and finances, right? But we're, we're going to get right into it. So, Kristen, you're a little bit different than many other people in this space. Uh, you actually invest in stocks. Can you talk about that? And what percentage of your portfolio is stocks? And you're very diverse. I'll 
say one other thing before I let you talk is I know you've held a lot of real estate. You've had rental places in Portland and I think White Salmon, was that the name of the town? That's right. Okay. So I know you, you've got a very diverse portfolio. So yeah, I'd like to hear about your stocks and what percentages. Yeah, I would say I'm probably um, 30% real estate, 70% stocks um, or 70% you know investments. Um, and I would say among the non-real estate investments, I would say it's probably 80% stocks and 20% index funds. I've gotten I've gotten a slightly more VTSAX over the years, um, but I have to say that I am still predominantly in stocks. And I know for many in the FIRE community, that's fairly horrific, but um, it's served me well so far. Yeah, I don't think it's horrific, but it is very difficult. I was thinking about our conversation that we were going to have yesterday and I, I own stocks too, um, unusual like you. And but I set rules around my stock holdings, and one of them is I want to buy a stock that I can be reasonably reasonably confident that the company will be at a better place in ten years, which is very very difficult. Do you have rules around your stocks, or how would you decide to buy a certain stock? Uh, I don't have rules, and to be honest, I don't actually do. Um, you know, PE assessments and other things that most rational people do. I really, um, you know, in some cases rely on my gut. Um, so for example, I just recently invested a little bit in Oatly, which is an oat milk company. And I think they have a really bright future, uh, even though I've uh, lost a little bit since I invested a few weeks ago, right after it went public. But I actually do think that um, that is a good long-term investment. I say most of my other stocks at this point are in tech. And um, yeah, they are high risk, but um, I mean, I worked at Google for a number of years, so I'm I have a you know um, disproportionate amount of Google stock, and uh, I still don't uh, don't feel that it's very risky, and it's served me well so far. And um, you know, I think even if you know Google and some of these other tech companies get broken up, I still think it'll serve me well as a as a shareholder. So it'd probably be better if I didn't have so much tech, but. Um, it's very hard. It's very hard to part with it when it's done so well and continues to do so well. I have a very high percentage in tech too, and a lot in Google as well. And that's one of the ones, one of the few I could probably count them on one hand stocks. I truly believe that are worth holding for the next 10 years. So you would probably call yourself more of a growth investor versus a dividend like income investor, correct? Correct. Okay. You said one thing a moment ago that I find interesting. You said you don't do like the PE analysis, which is what rational people do, but I think the PE and all that number stuff, that's that's the easy stuff. And that's where the small money is made. The the big money is made if you can try to analyze trends, the, the subjective stuff, like where the world is going. Because any company that has a bright future, there's a big growth component of it. And, and they're going to be spinning their wheels for a long time before the big money shows up. I remember Amazon had a PE like way over a thousand just a couple of years ago. And now I think it's like 78. And I remember Google having an astronomical PE a long time ago, and now the stock price is way, way higher, but the PE is way, way lower. So the subjective stuff is the hard part, but that's where the big money comes in. If you can figure out those trends, um, Tesla's another one. It, it's, it's tiny now. You would not buy the company based on any numbers, but if you think the wor world is going to electric cars and if you think they have a competitive advantage, it makes uh, sense if you think about it like that. And I have some Tesla too, not as much as you, but I do have some. Did you have a real Tesla yet? Or? No, I, I, I don't. I don't have a Tesla vehicle, but I have some Tesla stock. Cool. And did you just start investing in stocks like when 
you started your career and when you started investing just in general? Yeah, I, I started pretty early. My, my dad has um, been pretty obsessed with the stock market forever. And I, um, you know, I think I got inspired by him. I think my first investment was Ben and Jerry's and I was late. Uh, you know, I think I lost, lost a lot of money on it, but should have invested in it earlier. And I think I set up my first Roth um, pretty early on in my career. I was living in Morocco and making hardly any money. I think I made like $17,000 that year teaching. And, um, but I, my expenses were pretty low over there. And, um, and I started a Roth then. And I think, you know, starting early um, was pretty critical and uh, wish I'd started even earlier. Would you consider yourself financially independent? You know, that's a good question. And I've been asking myself this quite a lot. I mean, I, I did quit my job at Google in January 2020. And um, I think if I were to have made the decision to either be totally nomadic or to live in a very low cost area, even, you know, moving to Thailand or something like that, absolutely. Uh, it would be very clear to me that I've that I've hit phi. However, what I really wanted was I wanted to find an amazing community um, of like-minded people and amazing access to outdoor activities. And that's what I found in Bozeman. And Bozeman's really, you know, definitely fit that and, and been you know, a huge win for me. However, it's a very expensive place to live. And I decided to purchase a house there that um, was pretty expensive. And I'm also, you know, continuing to invest in real estate by building an ADU or accessory dwelling unit in the backyard so that I can rent out both parts of the house. So long story short is because I have made the decision to live in a pretty expensive area and because I'm probably pretty conservative financially and frankly don't even know what a normal year would be for me in terms of expenses because my life has been so different the last five years, um, I would say that I am, you know, I don't know. I, I, I'm not really answering your question. I'm sort of uh, on the fence as to whether I've truly hit fire or not. I'm, I'm much more comfortable having a steady st stream of revenue, which I you know hope to have through Airbnb income and rental income and through my sleep school and eventually through monetizing the podcast. And so that I don't have to sell my uh, you know stocks. That's really, I don't like selling stocks. Right. That makes complete sense. And I, I've I think we were in the same situation, my wife and I. We lived in Bozeman, of course, and then moved to Longmont, also expensive. And the last five, six years have been very different. But I think pr probably, like you said, if you, if you were pressed and you had to figure it out, then you'd certainly be able to lower expenses and make the math work out and you'd be in good shape. You're pretty smart, so you'd probably be able to figure out how to earn some money somewhere doing whatever. I mean, you could sling beer or coffee, you know, something you can maybe get a discount on something fun, but yeah, that's a tough one, tough one to answer when the expenses are so variable. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And one thing I'll say is I think Kristen, I think you did it right. And I did it wrong. What I did is I just worked my ass off to get to this big number where I knew I was financially independent. And then I stopped. Whereas you stopped a little bit before that, and I think the difference is you're focusing on more uh, on happiness and about actual living where I was just focused on getting to this big number, which was stupid and postponing my happiness for something that I thought would make me happy that did not. So if anyone's listening and debating this, do it like Kristen, don't do it like me. <laughs> it, it, and this actually leads to another question in our prep for this interview. 
I know you've liberated yourself from Google. You said January of 2020, but you said you're working more now than you ever have. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, when I when I left Google, the plan was I was going to, um, you know, I ju just bought a house in Bozeman and I was going to take five months to through hike the Pacific Crest Trail. And I had my permit. I was set to leave. I think it was May 5th from Mexico and head north. And I thought that would be a really great way to, you know, clear my brain and um, really have sort of a, um, you know, rejuvenating experience and then uh, start North Star Sleep School in the fall. That was the original plan. Then COVID happened and, and um, you know, my whole year basically changed and um, basically decided to, uh, since I couldn't do the PCT, I decided to start my business early. So I basically didn't really have a whole lot of time off between Google and starting my new business. And, um, you know, the sleep school and the podcast were, were really initially meant to be sort of interrelated. And the idea is the podcast focuses on rest and rejuvenation. It focuses on unplugging from technology. It focuses on transitions and transformations. And it focuses on finding what fuels you. And the idea was that the, you know, the podcast was going to provide fresh content and bring people back to the sleep school. However, what I'm finding is that it almost feels sometimes like I'm starting two businesses at the same time, um, which are each sort of full-time endeavors. And then on top of that, I've renovated the house that I bought in Bozeman, and I'm in the middle of um, starting this ADU project in the backyard. So my time has been very much split in three different directions, and um, all of them have been awesome, but uh, I am not having a whole lot of couch time these days. I In one of your other interviews I listened to, I think you said... I'm not very good. Uh, you said something like, I'm not very good about spending time on the couch or something like that. <laughs> I can I, I can relate to it, especially after having a normal job. Life just seems like this ever-expanding buffet and you want to eat it all and there's no time for shit like sitting on the couch and like TV. What, what the hell is that? Yeah, what the hell is that? And I also just don't know how to say no. I mean, here I am, you know, in Longmont this weekend. I have a lot of things that I could be doing this weekend. Um, and, uh, you know, but the to-do to list never ends. And so, um, you know, it's much easier also to say yes. I, I, I enjoy saying yes a lot more than I enjoy saying no. I'm very happy that you did come to Longmont. And I hope you find this weekend beneficial. I'm curious to talk to you after it's over and see what you thought of it, listen to what you thought of it. I'd like to ask a couple of follow-up questions. This ADU, when is that going to be done? Uh, we're supposed to break ground in October, right before the ground freezes in Bozeman. And then I hope to move in, in um, hopefully by March of, of next year. Okay. I have a feeling I, Bozeman is blowing up. I heard someone call it Bose Angeles, I think was the name for it, because all these people are from California are moving there, maybe. Uh Real estate there has just gone bonkers, so you'll probably make a killing. So I believe your plan is to move into your ADU and then Airbnb your primary house, correct? Correct. My my primary house um, is is functioning like a duplex. And so right now I have one long-term tenant, and then I'm living in the other half. When the ADU is done, I'll move into that, which will be a 480-square-foot little apartment. And then I will Airbnb the front of my main house, which is where I've been living. So um, yeah, real estate is crazy. There's no inventory. And, um, you know, I feel fortunate to have uh, found a place in a very popular part of town where you can walk to, 
you know, two different breweries. You can walk to the library. You can walk to Main Street. You can walk to yoga. It's really convenient. Uh, walkability has so much value in life. Incredible value. Do you have any idea what the numbers will be from your primary Airbnb once you get that going? Have you done research? Yeah. In fact, I I, I had it on Airbnb before I moved into it. Um, and I think I can bring in about 2800 a month uh, conservatively. Okay. Um, so that's great. That's going to be a large chunk of change towards to financing your life. And I suppose if you ever went on a trip, could you Airbnb or ADU as well? I could. Uh, I could, definitely. Okay. So interesting, all the different ways people make money. Four years ago, we just all had jobs. Now we've got hustles and ADUs and renting out our couches and vehicles and, and everything else. It's very interesting how the world has changed. There's no reason. It's very hard not to make money if you put your mind to it. Yeah. And I, and I would say there's, um, you know, there's interesting, uh, certainly interesting opportunities and it also can go too far. So I would say, you know, when I look back to, you know, a few years ago when I, I had a little uh, condo in Portland and then I had a townhouse in White Salmon, which is an hour east of there. And there was a point at which I was, um, you know, between the two, those two properties, there were three Airbnbs between the two of them because the townhouse could be split into two. And there were a lot of times when I was gone. I was gone for work or I was gone on vacation and had three going at the same time, three rented out. And I'd say it it, it can get to a certain extreme where it kind of diminishes quality of life, where you feel like you can't like truly unpack your shit because you feel like you might have a tenant the next day or somebody coming in. Or, I mean, this is crazy, but I remember a time where I was just passing through Portland. I was literally there for like, you know, got in at like 11 p.m. and had to be on another flight the next morning at like 5 a.m. And the place was cl had just been cleaned. And I basically like slept in my sleeping bag on my bed because I didn't, there wasn't time to like, you know, get it ready for the next guest. So that's the kind of thing of like, you know, sleeping in a sleeping bag in your own bed. That's kind of the most ridiculous example of how far extreme it can get to. So I have a hard time with sort of those boundaries um, because I'm like, oh, well, I could, you know, rent all three out. And so, you know, with the ADU, it's like, well, maybe, maybe the ADU should be something I don't rent out. Maybe, maybe the ADU is something I... Uh, keep for myself. So we'll see. We'll have to see how it goes. Right. I was just about to say it could get a little stressful with a lot of people relying on you. They're coming in from out of town. Of course, you can get people to help manage and clean and do all the details, but still it comes back to you at the end of the day. Yeah. And things can go wrong. I mean, I'd say for most of the time that I've been an Airbnb host, things have gone really, really well and it's been fantastic. But there have been a few times, like, for example, once I was uh, on a hiking trip and I was in Italy and, you know, there's a massive time change between the Pacific Crest, uh, Pacific time and uh, time in over in Italy. And I found out that like my tenant was like locked out of the building and, you know, it was just a disaster. Um, and so when things like that happen, it's, um, you know, it's probably better to have a property manager. So cool. I'd like to talk a little bit more about Bozeman. I had never known uh, there was a sport called skate skiing until I listened to some of your podcasts or, or earlier, earlier this week. So you're deciding between Bozeman, Bend and was it Telluride? Yeah, that was the, the the final lineup of places I was thinking of moving. Yeah. Okay. And what made you choose Bozeman? You know, Bozeman, um, winter is certainly the primary season there. Um, and the opportunities to find places to go Nordic skiing, there's just so many that are so close by, um, including Crosscut, which is where I like to go the most. That's only about like a 25-minute drive from my house. Um 
So winter activities is huge. Um, the trails year round are pretty amazing for mountain biking and hiking and other things, uh, stand up paddle boarding, all these amazing activities. But I'd say for me, the, the differentiation between, you know, Bozeman versus uh, Bent and Telluride is I just felt really excited about Bozeman. It was sort of a curveball. You know, I'd passed through there on a random road trip. I'd spent 36 hours there. And I just had sort of a magical experience of meeting people who felt really, truly authentic, who seemed just down to earth and easy to talk to. And um, not to say that you can't find those things other places, but I just felt I just felt excited about it. You know, Telluride is an amazing place, too. And I'm actually about to go to a, a film festival there in a couple of weeks. But, you know, Telluride's really expensive and it's it's quite small as well. Um, so I think Bozeman is really a better was better fit for me, at least for this time in my life. Okay. And you don't have to convince me. I mean, we we lived there for four years. We absolutely loved it. And similar story where we were passing through, not even planning on moving there. And then we just stayed. So there's a strong chance we have sat at the same bar and talked to the same people and had the same bartenders at a uh, shout out to Bozeman Brewing. <laughs> so, shout out to Bozeman Brewing. It's a great spot. Yeah. So with the... Cold weather, obviously, if you're into skiing, you're probably used to it. And I think you've only spent one full winter. Uh, that... two, two full winters now. Two yeah. full winters. So mm -hmm. was that surprising at all? Have you lived in that kind of a climate before? You know, it was uh, the last two winters have been relatively mild, actually. So I think um, I think I need to spend more time there to know what a true Bozeman winter is like. I mean, hopefully climate change hasn't destroyed it completely. But, um, you know, this winter, for example, you know, December, like, wasn't that great for, for skiing. But yeah, it is cold. I actually do much better in the cold than in the heat. I mean, it's been 90 all summer in Bozeman, and it just sort of um, kills my energy, kills my sleep. And uh, I'd much prefer... Uh, much prefer below zero temperatures. Yeah, me too. And I'll show you a picture later where the snow is piled up higher than my truck in, in the uh, yard just from shoveling. So in 2019, the year that we moved, there was a lot of snow that winter and we were actually like, let's get the fuck out. Like it'll actually be a little bit nice to leave and then a couple mild, mild winters. But I would honestly, I would still take the cold over, you know, what we're dealing with here just in general. And now it's summertime right now when we're recording. It was a little smoky, right? Um, yeah. How's that been? Is that an issue? I know it, it's, it can be that way out West just in general. Yeah. I mean, it, it has been uh, bad for air quality and for, for visibility for, you know, showing visiting family members last week, you know, the beautiful settings. It's hard to show things when uh, it's so, it's so smoky. I think we don't have it nearly as bad as some other places do. And it also isn't nearly as bad as it was this time last year when there was a massive fire um, on the way to Bridger. I don't know if you heard about that, but. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right on the Bridgers right there yep. near the M and everything. Yep. Yeah, that was crazy because I used to go and hike there when I had the corporate job. Uh, just during lunch, it was yeah. close enough to just pop over, do three or four miles and, and come back and do some work. Super efficient. Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. Um, next, let's see. Any, anything else about Bozeman? I really want to get my ass there. I hope you're, uh, no, no pressure, Kristen, but if you could make sure your Airbnb is done by like, uh, next summer or your ADU is done so I can come it, it stay will be. in your, okay. There'll be, there'll, there will be a place for you oh, for sure. Oh, I can't sure. wait to go there. Just. We were talking when you had to take a break a second ago, Doug, about how walkable everything is. You can walk to two breweries and like walkability has a lot, a lot of value in life. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, yeah. it's a great location you were telling me where, where you're at. And yeah, that's fantastic. 
really awesome. And I was in a less sort of uh, cool spot, but right behind the REI. So we can still walk to all that stuff right there and get coffee or walk the dog into all those stores over there. So yeah, it's a cool town. Cool. May of 2022, we are there. And, and I'm not kidding. I can't wait. Awesome. Let's talk about behavior change. Behavior change. I need to change the behavior of how I talk because apparently I can't pronounce that <laughs> word. <laughs> okay. Anyway, uh, this topic really intrigues me because I, I think this is a lot of humans really struggle with this. They'll quit smoking and then they pick it back up again or they change their diet, lose 30 pounds, and then they've picked up the 30 pounds plus more pounds six months from then. It's hard to permanently change in life. Uh, how did you change people? What did you change at Google and how did you do it? Yeah, when I was at Google, I was working on the food team and we ran cafes at the Google offices around the world uh, for the Google employees. And um, in addition to the cafes, we also had these little micro kitchen snack areas, which were places where Google employees could go and get a cup of coffee, get a cold drink, get a snack, et cetera. And one of the things that we worked on was how can you apply behavioral sciences to help make it easy for Google employees to make better decisions, whether it was healthier decisions or more sustainable decisions. So just as a couple of examples, you know, we had on the counters of the ca of the little micro kitchens, we would have fresh fruit and then we would put less healthy snacks like M&Ms, for example, behind frosted glass or in opaque canisters. And so even if you knew they were there, there was just, it's, it's amazing how effective it is um, when the first thing you see is the healthier choice. And similarly, you know, we were really trying to get people away from disposable cups and disposable, um, you know, for coffee or for cold drinks. And so we would have reusable cups as the first thing you would see. And then behind them, we would have the disposables. Um, of course, if it was totally up to me, we wouldn't have the disposables at all, but we were very much about providing choice in the program, which is something that uh, I think is really important. Yeah. So it seems to me a lot of what you did is maybe tweaking the environment a little bit to still offer the same things, but to make it easier to make the right choice. And I think of this in my own life, like, for example, if there's cupcakes in front of me, I will eat them. I just have no willpower. Someone dropped a big plate of them off at the HQ yesterday and I see them, I'm like, damn it, I, I can't resist. So what I have to do is just not have the stuff in the house. It's easier not to buy it than it is to resist it once it's in the house. So I go to the grocery store when I'm not hungry. I don't buy the shit. And if it's not there, I can't eat it because it's not there. And I've thought about this with phones too. If I put my phone on airplane mode, then I can't pay attention to a text that comes because I don't know it's even there. My phone didn't beep with a notification. And furthermore, there's a little barrier where if I want to check my phone, I got to open the settings, click the airplane mode thing, wait for it to come back on. So I, I found that huge in my own life, just setting up the environment for success, I guess. So I don't even have, there's a little barrier that I have to overcome to do that bad behavior. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's amazing how now that I really understand how effective all that is, how it's really easy to make some of those changes in my own life. I mean, even in the kitchen, like, sounds so silly, but like having a bag of carrots in the drawer versus having carrots that have already been cut up. I don't even peel them, so I'm not even going to say peeled. But having them already cut up, like in a clear glass container, 
it is so much more likely that I'm going to eat them when they're in that clear glass container cut up and ready to eat. Um, you know, and I think a lot of this can also apply to other things like sleep. For example, just putting your cell phone in another room aside from your bedroom so that you're not scrolling endlessly before you go to bed. So you're not sending one last email before bed so that when you get up to pee at two in the morning, you're not randomly checking Facebook or Instagram or whatever you check. So yeah, I think these ideas around changing your behavior to just make it easy to make better decisions is really effective and doesn't really require a ton of effort. And have you done any of those things? I know you gave the example of not keeping the phone maybe right next to your bed, but I know um, I, I would tell people not to do that, but I actually have the phone right next to my bed. So <laughs> have, you, have you done anything specific? Oh, absolutely. I, 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 I definitely... Uh, I turn my ringer off and put it in airplane mode and put it in another room. Uh, that's like a, a non, uh, non-negotiable for me. And then, so I've thought about, I've done that a little bit to just like charge it in a different room for like emergency calls. Do you worry about that at all? Like, no, I, I don't, I don't feel like, I don't really feel like, I don't really know if there's anyone who would call me at three in the morning. I mean, I don't have children, so maybe I'd feel differently if I had, you know, teenagers running around, but I don't. So. Um, you know, maybe I should be more thoughtful about, about getting an emergency phone call, but I just, um, I don't, I, I turn it off. Okay, cool. That makes sense. And I think, um, with the phone stuff, I also, I don't put it in airplane mode, but I have, uh, it's set on like the screen time. So I only have a very small window. So it's inconvenient to use my phone. I have alerts off, which is why I didn't get your text until, uh, you rang the doorbell. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry about so, that. No, but I mean, there's there's a cost, but I was able to finish whatever shit I was working on. And uh, I mean, it, it worked out completely fine. But yeah, there's, uh, there's a lot of things you can do to just make it inconvenient. And we're so lazy most of the time that that little inconvenience is going to keep us like, oh, shit, well, I'm not even going to check my email because I have to swipe like three more times. So lazy. Yeah. And I admit to judging you sometimes, Doug, because I know you batch your email. And you try to stay away from your phone. So sometimes when I send you an email or text, especially a text, and you you reply soon after, I'm like, well, I appreciate he replied to me pretty quickly, but Doug, man, stay away from your phone. What are you doing? Or what do you, <laughs> when you reply to email, because uh, usually I don't get a reply for a long time, which, which is great. I mean, it's slightly annoying because I want my thing answered, but I'm, you're doing the right thing. So when I get a quick reply, I'm like, oh, Doug. What happened? Doug, sometimes you, you just catch me just at the right time, but f- funny uh, side story. So the, the technical problem that I was telling you about earlier, Kristen, was related to email. So emails that I've sent for like the last week on my specific email domain, uh, it's fucked up. Like they haven't been getting them. So turns out, everything's fine. Like no one's complaining that they haven't received the reply back. So like, it's just proof that you can just not check your email or not reply for like over a week. Hopefully it's going to get resolved because I I do need those emails to eventually go out. But I think we maybe put too high of a priority to reply quickly, or we've accidentally set the expectation that we're we're going to reply back fast. But if people know that you're batching emails and you're not going to reply for maybe three days, then they just know if they really need to get a hold of you, maybe they call. And then, of course, now they're going to hit the airplane mode and not get in touch with you. But at least you've given them some path to go down. So here's a quick word from our sponsor. Thanks to the Economy Conference. The Economy Conference, and that's spelled E-C-O-N-O-M-E. 
I'm not good at spelling out loud, so just bear with me. Well, it has roots in the FIRE movement. It's going to be awesome this year. Carl's actually going to be speaking, so that'll be pretty fun. And you may wonder, why attend an event about financial freedom when you can educate yourself online or listen to podcasts like this one? Well, community matters very much, and when you decide to take an unconventional path, you may need a little support. Economy gives you the opportunity to surround yourself with an engaged community of people who are doing incredible things with their finances. Whether you're well on your way to financial independence or still struggling with debt, or maybe you're a student and you're about to launch your career, Economy is a great place to uh, meet other people and get more involved in the FIRE community. And actually, we talked to Diana Merriam back in episode 14. Now, I haven't personally met her yet, not in person, and I thought we were actually going to meet at Camp Phi, but she had some travel issues and she actually did her presentation remotely, which was pretty amazing. There were no technical issues and she did a great job. So I'm looking forward to checking out Economy in November. I recently got my ticket, so I'm looking forward to attending, checking out Cincinnati. I've only been to the airport, and I'm really looking forward to getting some of that weird spaghetti chili concoction from whatever restaurant it is, but it'll be awesome. Hopefully, we'll see you there. Back to the show. So, yeah, I'd like to do a little exercise here, and I'd like to do this exercise around intermittent fasting. So I'm a big believer in this because it's helped me a lot. I usually don't eat till noon. Unless some jerk leaves a plate of cupcakes at the co-working <laughs> space like they did yesterday, and in which case I broke my intermittent fast. So I'd like to know what you think, how you do your intermittent fasting, and then I want to talk about some behavioral changes that us humans could implement if they want to try it. Because I know it's not the easiest thing, especially when you start doing it. All of a sudden, you're postponing your first meal four or six hours or whatever you decide your fast is going to be. Yeah, um, I am. First of all, I'm I'm a fan of intermittent fasting. Um, I would say on and off for the last two years, I have been. Initially, I started off one day a week, um, not having a meal until about eleven in the morning, um, and trying to have dinner, trying to be finished dinner by about seven p.m. It doesn't always work out like that for sure, but you know, for example, last night I think I was finished eating at like six thirty, and I actually haven't eaten yet this morning um, by choice, which sounds so crazy. Like if you had talked to me maybe even just five years ago and said that I might be exploring something like this, I would say that's completely insane. Breakfast is the most important meal of the day, blah, 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 blah. But after trying it, um, my brain is just so much happier. I'm so much more focused and I get so much done on the mornings when I don't eat right away. Um, and I just have coffee or sometimes I have pu'er tea, which I like a lot as well. Um, and I'd say just the more I read about it and, and the benefits, I know a lot of people are interested in intermittent fasting for burning fat, but I'm really more interested in it for the autophagy and the idea that some of my you know, damaged cells are going to be the first to die off um, and the decrease in inflammation in my body. I feel like there's just a lot of benefits and I just, I feel great. So I do it about four days a week because, you know, frankly, there's always these other times where, you know, sometimes on the weekends, you just want to have an awesome breakfast, especially if you want to go out for breakfast. So I don't want to be so rigid that this is a seven day a week thing, but I've been enjoying it maybe four days a week or so. I, you know, don't eat until about noon. You could just have breakfast for lunch. That, that, that's what I do. No, no judgment. <laughs> breakfast or lunch, I'm all over that, especially if biscuits are involved. And what's the longest fast that you've done? Um, I did, I think it was about 
22 hours a couple of months ago, and I wasn't even planning to do it, but um, I think I had like a massive snack one day at like three o'clock in the afternoon. And by the time it was dinner, I just really wasn't hungry. And I felt like, well, this is stupid. Let's just not eat dinner just for the sake of eating dinner. And then, you know, went to bed and the next morning I'm not used to eating right away in the morning and then worked out whatever I did that day. And it was not that hard. I think it would have been much harder to do it starting at you know, a morning and go through till the next morning. But the way I did starting in the afternoon for me and for my schedule, it wasn't that hard. And often I can sort of buy myself a few more hours when I work out because it sort of kills my appetite and gives me energy and and, and whatever. So um, I would like to do a longer one, um, but I uh, haven't gotten there. How about you? What's the longest that you've gone? About 24 hours, kind of the same situation. And I've debated trying like 36 hours. So just pushing it a little bit farther. Um, I just haven't pulled the trigger on that yet, but I, I really enjoy it and kind of adopt your maybe like four or five days a week, depending on what's going on. And now do you ever cycle off of it and just let your body hit a norm for a few weeks? Totally. Um, in the last year of my time at Google, I had a lot of burnout related health problems and I actually like completely abandoned this. I also completely abandoned, I was doing the Wim Hof breathing in the morning and I completely abandoned that as well because I learned that kind of doing this basically hyperventilating in the morning, like brings out all this sort of adrenaline cortisol type stuff that I actually did not need more of. I actually needed more, <laughs> more relaxation. Um, and so I think it was sort of exacerbating some of my health problems. So I basically abandoned all of it um, for a while and um, have recently gotten back into uh, the fasting, not yet the Wim Hof breathing. Got it. And then with the fasting, I find my workouts are usually pretty good and there's so many other factors, like if we slept well or how the whole week is going in general. But for you, like working out, do certain workouts go well while you're fasting and maybe others not so well? You know, I generally feel better in all of them um, when I haven't eaten. I'd say the only exception is once when I did yoga, I think it was the very end of that, you know, 22 hour thing. And it was a hot uh, hit class. And um, yeah, I definitely felt dizzy a bunch of times and was like, okay, I don't need to do this again. But um, but in general, I actually feel crappy when I have food in my stomach. And just as an example, so I have a calf strain right now, a soleus strain, and I haven't been able to really run for about a, a month. So I'm now swimming, which is sort of swimming in pools is sometimes a little bit painful for me. And yesterday I went swimming and the only time the pool is open is like 1145 in the morning. So I, I, I actually had eaten something beforehand and felt very sluggish. So I do better off without food in my stomach. Oh, and you broke one of the classic rules not to swim after eating. Exactly. I know it could have gotten a cramp. <laughs> you, you wonder where a lot of this wisdom comes from. Like, <laughs> Yeah. So where does this this wisdom come from? Like you should drink eight glasses of water a day or breakfast is the most important meal or, or don't swim after eating. And I think most of that stuff is probably a bunch of bullshit. Like one person happened to say it and the person had no knowledge, but then it stuck for some reason. And when I tell people about intermittent fasting, that's what everyone says. Breakfast is the most important meal of the day. Well, why is that? Um, uh, I don't know. Or maybe it's, uh, yeah, it's for energy. I'm like, well, in my case, I'm like you, Kristen, if I eat, I feel like sh I don't feel as good after, especially if it's a high carb thing. So I do better working out in the morning on the fast. And just like you, it allows me to postpone my fast too. I can, I feel better. It quashes the hunger. So I'm curious if someone is listening to this and they wanted to 
try intermittent fasting, how would they execute that behavior change? Yeah, I'd say the first thing is to look at what time you eat dinner and see if you can try to um, bump that up um, so that it's at least three hours before you go to bed, which is better for most people for sleeping anyway. Um, and then see if you can delay breakfast, even start with just delaying it an hour. Um, that's fairly painless. Um, I wouldn't start right away with, you know, jumping into a 24 hour fast. I would start with just increasing that window of time when you're not eating from slightly earlier dinner to a slightly later breakfast and just do it gradually and see how you feel. Um, I mean, I think ultimately with all these different you know, habit changes. If you don't feel good, you know, what's the point? So, you know, see how it goes. Um, but I would try that and, you know, see how it goes. Okay. Do you have any tips around this, Doug? Let's see. I agree with what Kristen said, luckily. And then I think I, I usually, I drink a lot of, well, coffee. That's kind of a crutch with a caffeine. So that could be helpful if you like that sort of thing. But with uh, water, I usually throw some salt, uh, like sea salt in there, which I found really helpful. And I also, as a side note, I went on a long hike um, like the last couple of weeks. And one, I mean, I drank a shitload of water while I was hiking and I felt pretty tired like when I finished and I was spent. So I made sure on the subsequent hike that I salted the you know three quarts of water that I brought with me and I felt much better the whole time. So... I would say make sure you you know you stay hydrated, drink a lot, but maybe consider adding like a little pinch of salt or something like that to make sure that your uh, I don't know your electrolyte balance. I'm consult an actual scientist, but throw some salt in there. You may feel better. So do you, do you do that as well? Um, that's a great idea. I, I eat quite a lot of um, salt. Any I, I I love all the you know you know bougie uh, artisanal salts uh, that I have from Portland. So I actually put a lot of salt in my food. But what I do with my water is I put lemon or I put um, apple cider vinegar, a little bit of it in the morning. And my understanding is that even though it sounds counterintuitive, those seem like acidic. They actually. Um, are more alkaline and actually uh, are helpful to stabilize your your body after, especially after a night of sleep. So that's the route that I go is lemon or apple cider vinegar. Okay. And then what about you, Carl? Yeah, I have two other tips that Kristen sort of mentioned. The one is to distract myself. like, And what we're doing right now is a great example. It is 11.45 in the morning and I have not eaten yet. And I was starving before coming over here. We had pizza yesterday, so there's this really good pizza in the refrigerator, and that pizza was just calling my name, like, <laughs> eat me, it's breakfast time. And I'm like, nope, if I could just put it off for another half hour, I'm going to jump in the car and be recording this. So I just have to push through this for a little bit longer, and then I'm distracted, and I haven't thought about food until right now when I am thinking about food a lot, because I brought it back up again. <laughs> uh, the other thing which kind of goes along with the pizza is just to have shitty food that I don't enjoy eating in the house. So I'm trying to think of an example, like, like broccoli. Does anyone really like broccoli? I'm sure some people, I eat broccoli all the time, but I don't enjoy it. Like it doesn't taste good, does it? How do you cook your broccoli? I heard you say this on another episode and I was like, wait a minute, we need to talk about this. Uh, broccoli can be a really magical thing to eat. How are you cooking your broccoli? Okay. Well then, yeah, this is the problem. I buy these big, huge bags of it at Costco and they come in smaller bags and you just throw this little bag in your microwave and hit the thing for like four minutes and then it's done. And then I... I eat it, and that's all there's to it. So clearly, Kristen is looking at me. I'm, I am doing it wrong. And I, well, when you come to Bozeman, I'm going to make you some broccoli that's going to blow your mind. I'll believe it when I taste it. 
But I don't want good broccoli because then if I had that, then I would want to eat. But I no, I, I do want your good broccoli. But yeah, just having crappy food in the house that you don't really want to eat, it's a little bit easier to postpone. And one issue is we have kids and, hey, dad, I want to make waffles for breakfast. I'm like, oh, I really like waffles. And then the smell hits your nose. It's like, damn it, resistance is futile. So they'll be back in school soon and then this won't be an issue. <laughs> Yeah, well, and I was going to say, I enjoy broccoli, and uh, we get the steamers as, as well, um, and they turn out fine. I don't know. Throw a little butter and salt on there, I guess. That, that usually tastes good. Kristen, a common theme, and I'm sorry that we're going to go down this route, and you might even know where we're going to go if you've listened to our podcasts in the past. Do you like asparagus? <laughs> yes, yes. Does it have the effect on you? Or? Y- y- yes. Yes. Okay. And it always surprises me. You know, you yeah. think I'd know better by now, uh, but it always surprises me when my, my pee is stinky. Yes. It, it's very mm-hmm. fast too. Like I think my, I timed it one time, like nine minutes after eating, I'm like, <laughs> how does it work its way through wow. your body that quick? Maybe it was 15 minutes, but it was very quick, like eight and then went to the bathroom, like way to go asparagus overachiever. Wow. Yeah. We haven't done the experiment where we like have a asparagus tasting and then we actually time it to see who could win, but it's only a matter of time. Uh, <laughs> we'll have to do it at HQ. There's a lot more people. Yeah. And a I, bigger sample size. So what I learned in chemistry school was that it doesn't affect all people, but I think that's a bunch of shit because everyone I know has the exact same, it has the exact same effect on them. So if there's someone in the audience who eats broccoli <laughs> and their pee does not smell funny, uh, give Doug, send Doug an email, Doug at milehifi.com. <laughs> I mean, we share the inbox, so like you still get the email. So, <laughs> I'd rather you be associated with this, even though I probably brought it up. All right, I think so. For the people at home, we'll even mention we have a lot of questions about sleep, but it's such a big topic that we're probably going to have you on another time in the future to go over that stuff because we won't have time to cover everything. And I'm super interested in sleep, so for everyone that wants to learn more, they could check out your, your podcast, right. To get a little sort of refresher on that sort of stuff. Yeah. They can, they can check out my podcast, which is North star unplugged. And they can also check out my website for North star sleep school, which is at North star sleep Um, there's some information on there. There's also my contact information on there and I do free, uh, consults. And then I have a a course starting in September as well for folks who want to uh, either join a cohort of eight people or who want to do one-on-one classes. It's an hour a week for six weeks. Okay, cool. So we're not uh, not omitting that completely. We'll come back to it in the future. But we do have a whole other section, which I'm going to let Carl introduce here around one of our favorite topics. Yeah, we are going to talk about happiness now. And I really want to talk about this with Kristen because I think we're similar in a lot of ways, not being able to say no and just seeing all these opportunities come our way and wanting to embrace them all and go with them all. And then all of a sudden you're working harder than you did when you have a job, which isn't might not be the best thing for happiness. Uh, let's talk about, you mentioned November of 2020 was your lowest point in the pandemic. What was happening then? Um, so... During the pandemic, um, you know, it wasn't a good idea to to travel. So I spent um, Thanksgiving um, on my own, which is not a not really a holiday that I like to spend alone. So you know, even when I've been living in other places, including abroad, there was always some friends and some place to go. So that was a little bit depressing. I went down to West Yellowstone by myself, and 
I thought I would just go skate skiing for a couple of days down there. And I think I was like the only person in town and the hotel where I was staying at, the woman at the front desk was like wearing her mask, like around her chin. So I had to like ask her to put her mask on, which was like an awkward <laughs> thing to do as a guest in a hotel. I also had just, just been dumped. Someone I had just started seeing a guy broke up with me. So that was fairly depressing. And then when I got home back to Bozeman, you know, I thought I had, I thought I had COVID because I, my throat was feeling horrible and blah, blah, blah. I ended up having strep throat, which was not as bad. But um, but then my house was like infested with mice. So then I spent like the next like 10 days on this journey of how to deal with the mice. And first I had a very like humane, you know, approach. And I'm in, you know, the hardware store at Ace and like talking to the guy. And I'm thinking, okay, you know, I'm just going to. Um, you know, get these little like live traps where, you know, they crawl into the trap and then you like release them outside somewhere. But the guy had convinced me that basically if you if you let them go within two miles of your house, they actually come right back. So that seemed like a bad idea. So, uh, you know, then I got the snapper things and none of them were excited. None of them ate the cheese or Snickers or whatever I had on there. So a few more nights have gone by. They're waking me up in the middle of the night, completely grossing me out. And then I got the uh, like the electrocution chamber hotels where, you know, they crawl in and then they're zapped. They didn't seem to go for that either. Finally, after like my fifth trip to Ace, I'm like talking to the same guy at Ace. I got the pellets, which are like the dehydration pellets. And I got ones for mice and rats just to be safe. Those did the job. And um, it was quite a journey dealing with these mice, but they're gone now. Holy shit. This could be a, I was at a podcast uh, event. Uh, It was called Podcast Movement, where all these different people come to talk about podcasts. And there are multiple people who have exterminator podcasts. So if, your current adventures don't work out, I think, and they're very successful too. It surprised me how well these were doing. So I see uh, our mice infestation podcast in your future. You might have to uh, invite them back in your house so you could have some real time stories. But, uh, there's a lot to learn. It was quite quite a journey for me. Wow, we've we had we actually had mice in our house when we moved into it too. And I've got lots of tips around there. Peanut butter works worked very well in the traps for us. Really? Uh, yeah, no, yeah. Not for me. What kind of peanut butter do you buy? I don't know. I like the chunky kind, so I thought we had that, but yeah, it worked really well. One, one funny quick story was we moved in, and for some reason, my older daughter is just absolutely terrified of mice. So it was like a holiday weekend, so all the neighbors were having a party. And so there's a bunch of neighbors right outside her window, and it's open. So my daughter sees a mouse and just starts going, but screaming at the top of her lungs. <laughs> and we're like, holy shit, what's going on here? So we walk in there, and there's a mouse. And then I happen to walk outside and all the neighbors are kind of like on the driveway <laughs> looking at our house. And, and I could tell they were like, we're about to call the cops. I'm like, no, no, there was a mice in the house. We don't beat our children or anything like that. <laughs> so if, yeah, Doug, if you ever hear screaming at our house, it's, it's a mouse. We are not abusing our children in any way. It's just the mice. Well, and going back to, I think the, the origin of the question was just being in West Yellowstone. And I could imagine that time of year, lots of snow. There's not many people around there. The park is relatively closed unless you're taking like a snowcat in there, right? So, I mean, it's um, just thinking of that sounds a little sad. It's almost like a, um, it's like a the beginning of a horror movie or something like that. I mean, not to paint too dark of a picture, but I can 100% imagine what you're describing. And you're like, you know what, this kind of sucks. And same thing for Thanksgiving. We actually spent a few, um, just my wife and I, in uh, 
well, we, we, we were at home, but still we didn't have any family around. So how did you like sort of address that? It sounds like you realized you were at a down spot. So what did you do? Well, I, I, I stuck a chicken pot pie in the microwave <laughs> for Thanksgiving. That was my way. That was my addressing Thanksgiving itself. And then, um, you know, tried to go skate skiing there. That was what was, that's what I was sort of there for. And, um, but then when I started feeling so crappy, I thought I should go get a COVID test. So then I drove back and got a COVID test. So um, it was pretty pathetic. Okay. Well, then when did you pull out of that spiral? Oh, uh, probably when the mice were gone. That was a kind of a huge victory. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. That, that totally makes sense. And let's see here as we're moving on. Ah, well, that was sort of a down point and I am going to start asking this of a lot of our guests. So what is a sort of a perfect day or a perfect week look like for you? Yeah. Perfect day would be, uh, there'd be lots of snow and, um, I'd get up early and I'd go skate skiing, uh, for about an hour and a half or two hours. And then, um, then I'd come back and I'd, uh, have some sort of scrumptious coffee drink, uh, after, and then, um, I'd either, you know, I guess it depends if I, if it was a work day or not, but, um, I love to read. So that would be an awesome way to spend the next few hours reading. Um, maybe throw a nap in there. Um, you know, maybe, uh, maybe watch a movie, maybe make, make some dinner, um, have a glass of wine, uh, and go to bed early. I mean, it doesn't take a whole lot to really, for me to have a perfect day, but it definitely always involves time outside, ideally in the snow, and it involves some sort of learning or reading, which is often one of the same, and it involves some sort of tasty food. I, I love food. Where would you maybe eat out in Bozeman just so I can you know, travel, travel there in my mind? Little Star Diner. Okay. I'll have to check it out. We're going to be there in a couple of weeks because I don't know. I, it's not ringing a bell. I'll take you. We'll go. Okay. We'll go. It's my favorite place by a mile. It's very diner. tasty. Okay. It's on Babcock. All right. I don't know why it's not ringing a bell. Okay. That that is fantastic. Now, um, so I made you paint the picture for a day. I know sometimes we can't fit everything into a day. So is there anything else like that week that you would maybe want to throw in as well? Well, I really enjoy exploring new places. So um, for me, travel is just very, very energizing, just having an opportunity to wander around a new place. So, um, so yeah, having, having, you know, new, new places, new people, um, somewhere in that week would also be awesome. And this is kind of a, a little bit of a tangent, but you've lived in a lot of different places and traveled to a lot of countries. Can you throw out some stats? So we have like a scope of all the places you've been. I've lived in Indonesia and Paris and Milan and Sri Lanka, uh, Thailand, uh, Morocco, um, Santa Fe, uh, upstate New York, Lake Tahoe, Bozeman, Portland, White Salmon, grew up in Philadelphia. Um, sure, I'm missing some spots in there. Mexico. Um, yeah, so I've had a, a, a feel very fortunate that I've had an opportunity to live in a lot of different spots and then to to travel to many more. Wow. And what what draws you to like all the different places? It sounds almost like chaotic to to live in so many places. So what what makes you keep doing it? 
Yeah, you're right. It is totally chaotic. Uh, I think I'm pretty restless, I guess. But I also just really enjoy uh, actually living in another place. I think for me, it's sort of this greediness that going somewhere for a few days just isn't enough. And what I really want to do is go to a place and actually like read their newspaper and eat what they eat for breakfast and try their random beer and, and you know, do all the things that people who live there um do so you know for me it's just it's 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 such a massive rush of energy to be able to actually live in a place even if it's only for a few months um for me that's so different from just going for a weekend awesome that makes sense how do you deal with uh, language issues in a place like morocco or indonesia do most people there speak english or how do you get around that aspect um in morocco i was able to get along fine because i already spoke french um I didn't speak much Arabic. Um, I only still to this day know a few words. And that was actually okay, except uh, I was teaching and I was teaching in English and my students, when they would um, start arguing with each other, would start switching to French. And that was fine because I could still follow. But then when they'd switch to Arabic, then 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 they knew to leave, you know, they'd, they'd be leaving the teacher behind. Um, in Indonesia, um, I did take Indonesian classes. Um, Bahasa is their language. And it's actually fairly straightforward and they don't have verb tenses. So um, it's a lot easier language to learn than many others out there. However, it does lead to a lot of confusion um, because, you know, you're just basically saying tomorrow for anything in the future. And that is not always crystal clear what that means. That's <laughs> okay. One more follow up. What if you learned about yourself and or how are you a better person because you've traveled so extensively and you can throw the Appalachian Trail in here as well. Yeah. Um, I God, learned so many different things. Um, I mean, I would hope that I'm more open-minded about people's differences by having spent so much time in other places. I know from my time on the Appalachian Trail that I'm really happiest when I'm, you know, traveling light and um, really mobile um, so I love, for example, just, you know, having very, very minimal luggage wherever I'm going whenever possible. Um, I know that I also need downtime to myself. Um, I know sometimes on, you know, group travel sometimes is challenging for me because I just don't have enough time to go hide away and be an introvert or whatever. But, uh, yeah, I've learned so many things, but I, I guess I also just learned that I just, I so enjoy eating different foods and, meeting different people and experiencing different ways of living. Cool. And if you're doing an adventure like the Appalachian Trail, there's a quantity of food too. I think I heard you say you can eat a massive piece of pie at the end of the day. And it doesn't count because you've just burned 5,000 calories or whatever it was. Yeah, there was a lot of pie. It's amazing how many little towns along the Appalachian Trail have really good pie. Sometimes like it's the only thing in town. There might be like a post office and like a gas station and then a place that sells pie. And that's really all you need, right? Uh, calories are calories. Did you ever just eat like a whole pie for, for dinner because there was nothing else? And you could, and this is the only time in your life you'd ever be able to do something like this and be okay with it? You know, I, I can't remember eating a whole pie. Um, I don't know why I wouldn't have, but I do remember eating quite a lot of ice cream. Uh, and I, you know, halfway through the trail uh, in Harper's Ferry, there's a tradition for through hikers of eating a whole half gallon of ice cream. And there's a you know a lot of strategy around what flavor you should get because um, for many through hikers this doesn't go well and they end up with that entire half gallon um, thrown up in the grass. So there was a lot of strategy around 
getting chocolate vanilla strawberry because for whatever reason, the variety sits better. I have to say that, you know, having had so much time practicing my ice cream consumption, there were many, many, many days where I would be eating a pint in three seconds myself. So it was a lot of good training for the half gallon and I didn't puke up my half gallon on the grass. So I was pretty excited. <laughs> that is an accomplishment. Uh, one thing we talked about a little bit before is the pressure to keep the machine going. And I, in the show notes I have, it, your example was movie stars and or uh, or music stars who might do a concert and then they, they come home to an empty room. And this isn't quite the same, but you're a very accomplished person. You went to Princeton, right? Cornell and Tufts. I, didn't, I had to look up what Tufts is, but I'm sure it was good because I didn't know about it. Uh, you, you work for Google, probably the most desirable company in the world, if not one, one of the top three. Uh, I mean, talk about keeping the machine going and, and the balance because those are incredible opportunities and you worked very hard for them. How do you let that go? Or e even when you're doing it, how do you find balance in, in your life? I've never been good at balance. And, um, you know, I uh, I think that became quite clear, um, you know, at the end of my time at Google where I had all kinds of health problems because I really did not give myself enough time to recharge. And um, I just you know, I've, it's like we were talking about earlier, I've just have such a hard time saying no to things and trying to just prioritize what's really the most important. And, you know, because I was traveling so much for work, I would often tack on, um, you know, visits to various friends and relatives in various places. And I was just like never home. And there's a real, it, you know, there ends up being a real cost to that. And um, not having the time on the couch we talked about earlier is just something I've really never been able to um, prioritize. And I would say it's really... <laughs> clear even now, now like a year and a half after leaving that uh, very intense and very interesting, but very intense job, I am, you know, like exhausted right now. Like I, I, I am, I do not know how to give myself enough recharging time. So I really have not figured it out. Um, if anyone has any, uh, you know, wisdom on that, I am all ears because I read all the books, you know, I, I, essentialism is like one of the best books I've read. It's all about how to say no to 90% or 95% of opportunities so that you can actually say yes and focus on the ones that really matter. And I read that book and I'm like, yes, yes, that makes so much sense. And then yet, you know, two days later, I'm committing to 5,000 other things. So I haven't figured it out. Have you? What, I mean, what's the secret? I, well, I've got a couple ideas. One around this weekend, actually, you're going to be staying in our house and we actually have a lock on the outside of the door. So instead of going to the retreat, we could just lock you in there. <laughs> and, and I haven't finished the bathroom yet, but we'll put a bucket down there with a lot of toilet paper. We'll make it as comfortable for you as possible. We'll give you food. But yeah, you can have a little 48-hour retreat down there and we can start right after this podcast. No, no, I'm just kidding. So I struggle with all this, the same stuff. There's so many things I want to do in life right now. I'm learning Spanish. I'm learning the piano. I've got this house remodel I have to finish up and the girls are going back to school. So I have like six hours in the day to do all this stuff. And, and I could spend the next, uh, I could spend all that time for the next year, just finishing my house for this. If I had that all the time, just for this next school year, the fall and spring, assuming they go back, I wouldn't even have my house finished. And uh, the issue with me is I'll get started on one thing and I don't want to let it go. So I'll just start remodeling my kitchen and then oh, you got to go pick the girls up. I'm, you didn't do any of your Spanish. You didn't practice the piano. So what I'm going to try to do when the girls go back to school next week is give myself buckets of time during the day. So I'll allow myself until, and I'm still working on my schedule, maybe till 10 a.m. to practice Spanish and, and practice piano. And after that, I'm not allowed to do it anymore. Like force myself into these boxes. So at 10 o'clock, you have to stop. And I think that'll do two things. It'll make me, I don't think I'm happy when I'm just 
going whole hog on one project. So it'll force me to enjoy myself and do things. I'm also going to give myself downtime too. Like I, I get an hour in the afternoon to read or take a walk and listen to a podcast. So I think it'll do that. And it'll also put some boundaries around me, which will give me a little bit of a sense of urgency, I think, because sometimes you're, hey, I'm going to do Spanish. Oh, look, Twitter, what's going on there? Like, no, you only have an hour, 45 more minutes left to practice Spanish and you want to get through these lessons. So that's what I'm going to try to do. And there's nothing to back this up. I just came up with this shit in my own head and I hope it works. I'll, I'll let you know if I have any success. And if you want to do the basement experiment too, we, we could arrange it. I'd probably end up working if I did that. Yeah. Yeah. And I was going to say, I'll be interested, Carl, how that works out. It sounds stressful just the way you're describing it because you're putting time boxes on things. So you're like, oh, I have to finish this. So I already feel rushed and I'm studying uh, some, or I'm playing guitar more. I'm playing fingerstyle guitar and I, it's really hard. And I sort of enjoy the the struggle and time is like it doesn't apply while I'm trying to do that so I could do it for like a couple hours and it's like it was 10 minutes so there's some like the the part of my brain this regulating time is not paying any attention so with that you end up like letting other stuff go and I'm like I'm not putting any time constraints on it not that your um, plan won't work but that you know like I said, it stresses me out just hearing that you're time boxing stuff, which is effective for productivity, but I'm trying, here's my suggestion, to not be as productive, like sort of intentionally. So it's okay if if a workout that I thought was going to be, uh, you know, an hour, I'm having a good time, I'm going to keep running a little longer or walk farther and just like, who cares what's coming up next unless I'm getting really hungry. That. That could be an important thing where I'm like, all right, I got to get back for food. And then the other part is opportunity. So once I think we're probably in the same sort of position where we've we've accomplished some stuff in the past, and now we see all these opportunities and people approach us with things that we can say yes to. So I'm trying to just say no, like um, Greg McEwen suggests, to just say no to most things, and then I'll I'll see how it goes. Any sort of like very good or even great opportunity, I'll still say no and then just see how it works out. And it's really hard because it it looks great, but then it's going to take up so much more time. And I have, I've done it a few times where it was a, a very, a big opportunity that looked good, but not perfect and, and not excellent. And maybe the upside wasn't high enough. So I was like, ah, fuck, I'm just going to skip that one. And then, you know, there's going to be more coming my way because they have been coming over and over again. It's super hard to do, but I'm I'm trying it. I'm trying it out. What, what follow up to the stress part? And it, I admit, Doug, I had the same feeling as you. The, the one thing I decided to do was let stuff go. And uh, the big example is my house remodel. It was originally supposed to be done like uh, last May, and now I probably have. Yeah, I could probably have it done this May, but I'm like, well, why do you have to have it done by May? You should do the kitchen maybe because that's going to give you happiness and that's a fairly easy project to remodel a kitchen. But the rest of it, we're going to build like a luxury shower in the master bathroom. But how much pleasure is that going to give you in your life? Not that much. You're in the shower for like 10 minutes a day or whatever. So fuck the shower. I'll get around to it whenever I get around to it. The house is perfectly livable now. So I'm just going to punt that and Whatever I get done in that time, I'm not going to stress about it. And I've given myself shitloads of time to do a small amount of work on purpose. So 
I don't create stress and a super sense of urgency. But right. with all that said, how, how do you feel about all this, Kristen? About your remodel? Uh, no, I'm just curious. <laughs> yeah. It, it, yeah, how many people can fit in that shower? Maybe you're doing it wrong. <laughs> It's going to be sizable, Doug. I, I don't think I want to invite you or now I'm in there. <laughs> uh, no, I'm just curious. Have you have you figured out any ways to achieve better balance in your life? Life is this huge buffet of shit and it all looks like it's going to taste pretty good. So you want to try it on it. And by the way, that's why I don't go to actual buffets either because uh, <laughs> it doesn't end well. But, well, I still haven't figured out how to say no, as evidenced by the fact that this Tuesday I decided to to book a flight uh, to Longmont because I couldn't bear to not be with all of you this weekend. Um, but I will say that actually for me, my calendar is a huge tool and I actually do, um, you know, I've, I've started making a habit of like Thursdays at like four, I block off time to go to highlight this reservoir near me where I go paddleboarding or where I can go hiking and then paddleboarding or where I go swimming and then paddleboarding or whatever. But if I have something on the calendar, I'm pretty good about like actually doing it. And so whether it's, you know, going to a yoga class, going to a hit class, you know, I, I, I do prioritize um, physical activity and working out, et cetera, which is for me why it's really helpful to have that first thing in the day. And the fact that I'm not running now has actually destroyed my entire routine because I used to run first thing in the morning. But now that I have to use the pool, it's not open till 1145 and like my whole day has completely change. But using the calendar is is a great tool for me to try to block off time to do fun things. There's still there still is not couch time in there, but you know, maybe when the weather gets crappy, um I'll return to, you know, Netflix and couch time. What the hell is going on with the pool? 11:45. It should be open at 6, especially you're a apparently you're a Wim Hof fan. The, the, the cold weather swimming, you should petition them to Open that sucker or just maybe jump the fence and go in there. Yeah, this is like the bathwater swim. This is a, the, the Bogert pool. It's mostly for like four-year-olds. Um, so occasionally they open it for adults to try to flap around. Uh, Very cool. Well, we want to keep talking more and more and we're, we're actually going to, but we're going to stop recording now. Kristen, this has been amazing. It's the first time we met. It's been great to get to know you so far. And where can people find you? Um, I'm at northstarsleepschool.com, and that's where uh, my email address and the uh, my information about sleep classes and information about my podcast, North Star Unplugged, all of those are on the website. Very good. And quick plug, uh, you interviewed Carl, so if people want to check out the podcast, that's a great one to check out. And um, you've done a lot of episodes, so there's plenty more, and I'm just starting to dive in myself. Awesome. Well, I'd be I'd love any feedback and uh, also any ideas for new interesting guests. Awesome. Thanks, Kristen. Thank you. Thank you.